One of my favorite stories from the history of Buddhism is the story of the Emperor Ashoka. Ashoka was an emperor in northern India just about 250 years after the time of the Buddha. And in the very early years of his career, Ashoka was quite bloodthirsty and greedy for the expansion of his empire. It said that he was also quite an unhappy man. One day he ordered a particularly terrible battle in order to gain new territory. Just following that battle, he was walking along the battlefield through the truly appalling carnage that he had ordered, the corpses and the blood. And Ashoka was aghast at what he had created. It said that just at that moment, a Buddhist monk went walking across the battlefield and walked on by without saying a word. Although he said nothing, his presence, his very being, was radiant. He seemed very serene and at peace. Seeing the monk, Ashoka began to think, why is it that I, who have absolutely everything a person could want in this world, am so unhappy? And here is this monk, he has nothing All he owns are the robes he's wearing and the begging bowl that he's carrying. How could he seem so at peace? How could he seem so happy? So he decided to follow the monk and ask him that very question. He did that, came upon the monk, and in response to that question, the monk introduced him to some of the teachings of the Buddha. As a consequence of this encounter, Ashoka devoted himself to the teachings and to the practice and changed the entire way that he ruled the kingdom. He no longer allowed people to go hungry, and he built hospitals instead of starting wars. He took care of people. From a tyrant, he transformed himself into one of history's most respected rulers. And it was Ashoka's son and daughter who brought the teachings of the Buddha from India, transmitted it to Sri Lanka, then Ceylon. From there, it spread throughout Southeast Asia, Northern Asia, and throughout the world. Our access to the teachings today, so many centuries and cultural transitions later, is a direct result of Ashoka's transformation. The radiance of that one monk is still supporting the happiness of the world. Because he was happy, we are sitting here together all these thousands of years later in Barry, Massachusetts, practicing meditation. It moves me so much, this story, because it shows how one person's serenity changed the course of history, that his happiness was in and of itself a revolutionary act because of its effect throughout the world. That quality of happiness can be a revolutionary act because it comes from a revolutionary ground. It's not the ordinary happiness of getting what we want, which is certainly nice, but tends to be rather fleeting. 
We get what we want, and then it changes. Or we get what we want, and it proves to be not what we really wanted. Or we don't get what we want, and we have to scheme and plan as how to bring that about. It's very restless. Happiness that is simply the acquisition of pleasure is fine, but doesn't go very far. It's like the temporary appeasement of a child. Last summer, we spent some time with a family with a four-year-old child. And whenever he met an obstacle or didn't get what he wanted, the hallways would echo with his cries. Nobody in this house loves me anymore. And it looked kind of familiar, you know? We don't get what we want. Things don't necessarily go our way, and it seems as though all the love in the universe has been withdrawn from us. We are bereft. To depend on the experience of pleasure for our deepest happiness is very risky in this world of constant change, because life is as it is, despite our protests. There is a constant succession of pleasurable and painful experiences. We can see it in an hour sitting here. We start the sitting and we feel bored, and then we're happy, and then we're restless, and then we're tired, and then we're full of love, and then we're sorry. You know, on and on it goes. This is actually the nature of our existence. Sometimes in a momentary sense, sometimes in the sense of the larger ebbs and flows of our life. Once I was hiking with some friends in Northern California, and we had decided beforehand that we were going to follow a trail for three days, and then on the third day we were going to turn around and walk back the way that we had come. So on the third day of the hike, I was walking with a friend, and we found ourselves on a long, long, steady downhill walk. After several hours, this friend and I, it almost seemed like we were struck by a simultaneous realization, and we both just stopped, looked at one another, and he said to me, in a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. (laughs) And he was right. Because the very next day, when we were retracing our steps, it was a long, long, long walk of constant uphill walking. There are continual changes of uphill and downhill, of pleasure and pain. This is inevitable. We learn to find happiness rather than betrayal in life. through moving back from relying upon objects to recognizing the inherent power and purity of our own awareness. Rather than holding on tightly to things which must inevitably change and thereby suffering, we change our vision of what is really possible and where happiness is to be found. There are three, what I call, visionary statements of the Buddha which are especially relevant to this. 
The first is when he said that the mind is by nature radiant and pure. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. Defilement is a pretty awkward translation of a Pali word, which is klesa in the original Pali. It more literally translates as torments of the mind. This is something we can all know for ourselves, that there are certain states of mind that come up, and when we get lost in them, they have a tormenting quality to them. It's the torment of strong attachment or greed. When we can't see our way around a situation, we must have this one thing, and we must keep it from changing in order to be happy. It's the torment of strong anger. When we feel so separate and so isolated from a person, from the truth of the moment. It's the torment of fear, of jealousy. All of those states, when we are lost in them, are tormenting. But what we learn from looking within and seeing the nature of the mind is that these defilements or these torments are just visiting. They do not reflect who we actually are. They don't reflect the actual nature of the mind. They're adventitious. They're not inherent to our being. They don't live here. And yet our common or conventional relationship to these forces as they come up in the mind is as though we are sitting happily at home and we hear a knock on the door. We open it up and we say, come in, it's all yours. We allow these forces to overtake us. All of them, craving and desire and hatred and fear, the whole range of these forces will certainly arise within us. There is no doubt about that. That is the conditioning of the mind to have all of these various forces come up. It's inevitable. And because it's inevitable, it is not something to judge. It is not something to feel guilty about. But what we also learn is the skill to graciously have them go once they arrive at the door. That is by understanding our true nature and understanding the nature of these forces, that they are visiting, that they are temporary. We can learn to let go. This is one of the most powerful aspects of the meditation practice. It's remembering that actually we live here and that we can relate wisely to the various things that come and go in our minds. This is understanding the power and the purity of the freedom of mindfulness. Mindfulness doesn't take the shape of what it observes. It can freely observe anger without being distorted or ruined by that anger. It can observe great states of love and warmth and joy, and then grief without being shattered by that change. Mindfulness is inherently free, and it can go anywhere. 
There is no place in which it cannot be appropriate, in which we cannot be aware, and we cannot experience the power of that awareness. That is why mindfulness is really the heart essence of our practice. If our practice were dependent upon having a certain experience, then we would have to spend all of our time trying to sustain and protect that experience. Once it changed, as it inevitably does, we would have to scheme and manipulate and try desperately hard to get it back. But that's not freedom. Freedom is the ability to be aware in all situations. So that is the first visionary statement of the Buddhas. It's understanding that these forces are visiting and that the mind is by nature radiant and pure. The second of these statements of the Buddhas was also a very powerful one in which he said, I teach one thing and one thing only. That is suffering and the end of suffering. Sometimes I think it's because of that statement that Buddhism is misconstrued in the modern world as a very pessimistic, kind of bleak perspective on life. And yet, really that statement is very liberating. There is suffering and there's the end of suffering. Very often that vision is used to describe the fact that there's so much hidden pain and difficulty in this world and that we need to be able to bring it forth, we need to be able to see it clearly in order to become free. And that is true. But there's another way of using that statement. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. And that is actually using it as a vision of life. Instead of classifying things as good and bad, or right and wrong, or good and evil, is to see that there are certain forces within us, there are these mind states, there are actions we perform, there are habits we have that lead to suffering. It leads to contraction, they lead to pain, to separation. And there are other mind states, there are other actions, there are other ways of being that lead to the end of suffering, that lead to awareness, to wakefulness, to love, to compassion. You can imagine for a moment the mind that is not judging. We're not judging ourselves and we're not judging others in the light of good and bad. But rather we are seeing things in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. When we saw actions or mind states of suffering, whether within ourselves or in others, we'd feel compassion as the natural response rather than fear, condemnation, guilt. When we saw actions leading to the end of suffering, there could be a very genuine sense of rejoicing. It's not giving up a sense of discrimination or wisdom, but it's rather changing our vision of life so that we are moving from places of compassion and rejoicing. I had a friend who was once sitting 
the three-month retreat that we teach here in the fall. This is many years ago. He was working with a truly extraordinary teacher that we had named Deepama, who was an Indian woman, very empty, very loving. Somebody once made a comment to me about His Holiness the Dalai Lama winning the Nobel Peace Prize, and she said, giving the Dalai Lama a Peace Prize is like giving Mother Nature an art award. (laughs) And Deepama was just like that. There was no sense of contrivance, no sense of projecting a persona of love. She was so simple and so natural in that, that loving place. This friend was working with Deepama as his teacher. And at one point during the retreat, he got into a very difficult place. And he decided that the one thing that was going to make his whole life better would be if he left the retreat and he went and checked into a motel and watched a football game on television. (laughs) So he did that. But unfortunately, it didn't make anything better. In fact, it made everything a lot worse because not only did he have his initial uneasy feelings that had propelled him to do that, but now he had this tremendous guilt. (laughs) And all he could think about was, how am I going to go back to the center and see Deepama and tell her what I've done. She's going to reject me. She's going to hate me. She's going to think I'm the lowliest yogi in the world. You know? And it was terribly painful for him as he created an entire scenario in his mind. Finally, after many days, he approached her, terrified. And he finally he blurted out, the terrible thing that he had done. And she just reached down and took his hand and looked at him and said, it's okay. That is the mind that just sees suffering and the end of suffering. It is not seeking to judge and separate or reject. It sees suffering and feels compassion. It sees the end of suffering and feels rejoicing. That, in fact, is Buddha mind. That is the Buddha's vision of reality. And that is our own minds when we can make that perceptual shift, when we can change our view or our vision of things. The third statement of the Buddha is, in some ways, one of the simplest and one of the hardest to manifest. That is the realization that all beings want to be happy. Every single living, breathing being wants to be happy. But very few of us have a clue as to how to be happy. Often we define happiness as that grabbing of pleasure and that fearful holding on to it. We define happiness as separation having power over people. There's a legend surrounding the enlightenment of the Buddha. The Buddha was enlightened sitting under a tree in what is now a town called Bodhgaya in India. In the legend, it said that after his enlightenment, 
He did not want to teach. He thought that people would not understand what he had to say, and it was not appropriate for him to teach. It said that a, a celestial being came to him to try to persuade him to teach and asked him to use his psychic vision to survey the world, to see if he might be moved, in fact, to share his, his realization. It said that the Buddha did that, and what he saw that so moved him was not even the extent and the duration of people's suffering, but rather it was the prevalence of ignorance. He saw that everywhere people wanted to be happy and just did not know how. And so often they were doing the very things that were creating the most suffering for themselves and for others. And if we look at so many actions in our world, somewhere that's in there that wish to be happy, to be a part of something greater than ourselves, to be at home in our own lives, even in a twisted and distorted and awful way, somewhere that's in there, that all beings want to be happy. Rather than seeing evil, we see ignorance, whether within ourselves or in others. All beings want to be happy. This is the understanding out of which the force of love or loving-kindness flows. In Pali, this is the word metta, M-E-T-T-A, which you've probably noticed out in the front of the building. It means loving-kindness or love. It's also a little bit awkward to translate because loving-kindness isn't that common a word in conversational English. And love is a very difficult and confusing word often. Sometimes when we say love, we mean attachment or we mean passion, which are complex feelings, often enmeshed with a sense of expectation. You know, I will love you as long as you love me in these 15 ways, or I will love you as long as you give me this. And that is very different from the sense of metta. Sometimes when we use the word love, it's almost a kind of sentimentality or denial, where we try to pretend that the suffering doesn't exist and the terrible things don't exist. We just try to cover them over with this nice glaze. And metta isn't meant to be that either. It's a force in the mind which can be with all these different situations with a sense of connection. A literal translation of metta is friendship. It's learning how to be a friend to ourselves and to all that lives. When we first moved into the building, the building was an novitiate. It was owned by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. We came here, and that was what was up above the front. And we just stood there and looked at it for a while, looked at those letters, and we thought, what word that is relevant to our practice can we make out of those letters? And somebody got up on a ladder, and we started moving all these letters around. And finally, we came up with metta, which is a beautiful expression of a sense of purpose, 
that we are here for the sake of generating friendship to ourselves and to all beings. Sometimes it's been a little confusing with tradespeople and such who are asking directions. And we say, well, you come to a large brick building and it says meta on the top. But even that is a kind of statement. So we've just left it up all these years. Metta is friendship. Another meaning of the word is gentleness. It's likened to a very gentle rain that falls upon the earth without excluding and without selecting. It doesn't mean that we condone everything that people do and say it doesn't matter. That's more that sense of denial or pretense. But it's rather finding that place within us where we can see that all beings want to be happy and thus sense our oneness. We honor our own wish to be happy. That in some way is like our homing instinct for freedom. If we truly want to be happy and we can begin to understand how to bring that about, then we can pursue a spiritual path to its end. If we are embarrassed or ashamed of our own wish to be happy, then we don't utilize the power of that. We see it and honor it in ourselves, and we see it and honor it in other beings to live in friendship with ourselves and with all. That's metta. All of these these visions come into being through our practice. We practice in many different ways. One way is in the protected environment of a retreat, and that's wonderful. We also practice in daily life. Life is practice. And as we're about to leave, I want to say a little bit about that kind of practice. It's very helpful if you can maintain some kind of daily sitting practice. Certainly if you can sit for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, that is great, that's wonderful. But I truly believe at this point in my life that what is most important is the dailiness of it. If you only have 15 minutes, if you only have five minutes, it's better to sit than not to sit. Because that act of sitting is bringing all of one's values to life rather than having them held in a place where they can simply be appreciated intellectually or even emotionally. It brings them to life practically. This is very important. I was telling some of the people in my group this morning that when I first went to Asia, I'd been studying some Asian philosophy and some Buddhism in college. And then I went to India and I did my first meditation retreat. Up until the hour I sat down and had to look at my knee pain, I really thought I understood something about Buddhism. 
I thought, oh, I understand suffering and the end of suffering. You know, I wrote a paper about that when I was, you know. But when I sat down and it was my knee pain and I had to face the enormous conditioning I had about pain or unpleasantness, it was an entirely different level. And this is very important, that we bring it to life through our practice. That is the living spirituality. So even if it's very brief, every day to have that kind of commitment is very helpful. Walking is also very helpful in daily life. I don't know if it's because it's too peculiar just to be walking back and forth in your bedroom or wherever, but often people don't do it. Yet it is very helpful. It's a great transition from being busy, being active, to slowing down, to being still. We also use walking practice as we walk, just in movement, to be present with what we are doing, to be at home with our own bodies and minds, right then. Sometimes people give up sitting practice because they get discouraged. Sometimes when we sit, and maybe particularly after a retreat, we sit down and things are fairly flowing. We feel some sense of concentration. The body might not hurt so very much. The mind may be somewhat placid, and that's fine. But three days later or five days later or a week later comes the time when we sit down and it doesn't feel very good. We sit and it feels like restlessness and thinking and planning and body pain are all happening very intensively. Very often what people do at that time is they give up. You know, that's when the mind says, well, today's not a good day. You know, I'll just get up now after a minute and a half and I'll sit tomorrow. I'll sit longer tomorrow. That would be much better. So we get up and we sit the next day. Maybe it doesn't feel any better. Maybe it's even gotten a little worse. And so we think, well, I know what I'll do. I'll wait till the weekend. I'll sit all day on Saturday. And then I won't have to sit now. That'll really make it better. And Saturday comes along and maybe we sit all day and maybe we don't. But even if we do, it may not be feeling the way we want it to feel yet. So we think, well, this doesn't work. It only works in retreat. You know, it, it's not going to work. I'll wait till next month when I can go back to Barry and I'll do another retreat. And on and on it goes. I went to one of my teachers once in India when I was really caught in that kind of mind state. I could not keep a daily sitting practice going because as long as it felt good, I was happy to sit there. As soon as it felt difficult, I got up. So I went to him and told him what was going on, and he said to me, just put your body there. That's all you have to do, is just put your body there every day. Your mind will do what it does, you know, and some days will feel wonderful, some days will be more difficult, but just put your body there. And it actually was one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got from a teacher. So I would urge you to consider that, the importance of 
perseverance and commitment and patience, no matter what it feels like, it will make a big difference. If you can have some kind of daily sitting practice, what happens is that many moments throughout the day we spontaneously become aware. One of my favorite images of myself is something that happens sometimes when I leave a retreat that I've been sitting as a, as a student. Sometimes I'll be sitting, it's the end of the retreat, I'll get into my car and I'll see my hand go out to turn on the radio. And it's so interesting because at that moment I don't really want to hear any music and I don't really want to hear the news. It's just that I'm no longer in retreat and so silence is no longer all right. I feel like I have to fill in the space and make something happen because I'm no longer on retreat. And if I am aware, it's like I watch my hand go out and I bring it back in. This kind of momentary awareness breaks that momentum of feeling we always have to be doing something, filling in the space. We can relax into simply being. We can do that over and over again. If you think about how many moments in our lives, in a single day, we just overlook. Very early in my practice, when I was first doing this particular technique of mental noting, I was told, as we have been, to try to make a mental note throughout the day of whatever was predominant, no matter whether I was sitting or walking or whatever. So I was living in India in this compound doing that, and I saw that as I was walking through this compound, day after day, the single most prominent note I was making was that of waiting. I was just going around saying, waiting, 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 waiting. And one day I asked myself, well, what are you waiting for? I realized that what I was waiting for was something important enough or something spiritual enough to happen so I could pay attention to it. I was living my life almost like a tape machine with a pause button on. I was waiting for life to happen. We can do that, but we don't have to do that. To learn to dwell in being rather than incessantly in doing. Simply to be with what is happening, the quiet times, the neutral times, the ordinary times. To pay careful attention. When we first began the center, we had a friend who was here who created a kind of a mock IMS brochure which advertised all the tea you can drink and all these elements of life here. And he had written at the top as, as a motto of IMS, he said, it is better to do nothing than to waste your time. And I think if we can come away with just that, it is better to do nothing than to waste our time, because wasting our time is wasting our lives. So here we are. Many things happen throughout the day, some pleasant, some unpleasant, some neutral. 
we can be mindful of any of them if we remember. It's like Joseph was referring to earlier. We can have an idea that mindfulness is very far away. I used to have an image of it, almost like it was at the top of a mountain, and I knew I was going to get there someday. Even if I had to crawl the last part, I was going to get to be mindful. And it was only through some experience of practice and some greater understanding that I saw it was not far away at all. It was not remote. It was not hard to get to. It's right here. And it does what it does. It functions in its own way whenever we remember it. It's not like it's not going to do its thing one day. Mindfulness has the nature, it has the inherent nature of being free, of being able to go anywhere, of being unimpeded, unencumbered by grasping, by aversion, by delusion. That is the nature of mindfulness, and it's right here, if we can remember to use it. So we use all the different experiences of the day as best we can, as acts of meditation. We also use the precepts, the precepts that the Buddha spoke about in terms of living a life in the world, all had to do, have to do with not harming, not harming ourselves and not harming others. We look at precepts like not killing, not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct, which means not using our sexual energy in a way that does create harm, not lying, not taking intoxicants that cloud the mind, that create heedlessness. And it is a challenging way to live a life. It's not so easy, always. But if we can have that sense of compassion for ourselves and for others, it becomes a way of instilling tremendous awareness in everything that we do even as we try to understand our way or our path in a given situation, they are there, those precepts, to support us, to help us see clearly where compassion might lie. And so we make that kind of effort. It's really not always easy, but it is the hallmark of the awakened life, not to only take the easy way. And once we were teaching many years ago in a place that was a spiritual community somewhere, and there was a horrible influx of flies in the meditation room. And the people in the retreat center hung up a lot of fly paper, which was quite a gruesome sight. Strangely enough, for a spiritual community, there was not a single screen on a window or a door. It was like the earlier steps one might take to try not to kill were not being taken. It's so easy to kill. It's much harder to take the time to try to find another way. Whether or not 
in any situation, someone will find another way, is a compelling question. But to take the time not to just do things mechanically, that is the the gift of having some sense of these precepts and bringing them to life. To see that what we do really matters. What we think about matters, what we care about matters, how we act, it makes a difference in our lives. To be very careful about our speech. To watch when we are being truthful and we're not being truthful. To understand the power of simplicity. What happens when we create the incredible complexity of telling a lie? Some years ago I had an interesting experience with this when a friend of mine went to India to practice meditation. And she didn't want her, her mother to know that she had gone alone because she knew that her mother would worry a lot. So she lied and said that she'd gone with her husband and they were going to be back in a month. And if any kind of emergency came up, she wanted her mother to call this number, which was the house where I was living. So just about 24 hours before my friend was due back, her mother called and said, have you heard from my daughter or her husband? And the person who answered the phone in a, a moment of kind of mindless honesty said, oh, he was just here for dinner. And then he went, ooh. So he began to lie. He said, well, he went to India with her, but he came back early for business. And this woman got that very uneasy feeling that the truth was not being spoken. So she pressed and she pressed. But this friend kept lying. So they hung up. And then other people we knew in the community started calling, saying, you know who I just got a call from? This woman's mother. She wants to know what's going on. So then we realized that she was going to call every phone number of every person she knew who was a friend of her daughter's. So we realized that we had to call everybody first to make sure they knew which lie to tell. So we called all of these people, and we managed to reach a whole lot of people, telling them which lie to tell. And sure enough, this woman was calling all around. After she called all around and kept being lied to, she called her neighbor. Her neighbor started calling all of us. She thought maybe we would tell a stranger, you know, we wouldn't tell her. And it was this incredible web. Right in the middle of it, we started getting these obscene phone calls. And it was, it was really funny because we had to keep answering the phone in case it was this woman so we could lie to her. It's like, you know, normally in that situation, maybe you would stop answering the phone, but we had to keep answering the phone. It was just this bizarre evening. Finally, at one point, somebody could not stand it anymore, and they said, I'm just going to tell her the truth. So they did. But by that point, she had been lied to so often, it was like she didn't even believe the truth. And I saw what happens in that moment. Not only were we completely enmeshed, in lying, having other people lie. But it was almost like I could barely remember what was the truth anymore. It's like the momentary truth is our vehicle to the absolute truth. And we need to adhere to that 
as much as we can in our lives. It all comes back to that sense of ourselves as integrated beings, that what we do, how we act, is the same as what happens when we sit. It is all of one piece. So we sit as much as we can. We use the moments of our lives. We practice with the precepts. And we use the force of metta. Metta, or loving kindness, is both the natural outgrowth of a life of awareness, and it also is a distinct practice that we do. We do it in conjunction with the mindfulness practice. Sometimes we do metta in a very non-formal way, just walking down a street, wishing well, offering that sense of friendship to those beings who come by. Sometimes we do it in a formal sense. When metta is done formally, it's a practice that begins with ourselves, wishing for ourselves that which we might deeply aspire to, states such as happiness, true happiness, peace, liberation. The Buddha said something once that I found very powerful. He said that, We can search the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of our love and affection than we are ourselves, and we won't find that person anywhere. More than anyone in the universe, we deserve our own love and affection. So we begin the practice with ourselves. Traditionally, we then move on through various categories of beings, and this is something you can experiment with if you want to do this practice at home. We send metta towards somebody that has been very good to us, that we really care about a lot, we feel gratitude towards. We send metta to beings that we hardly know, that we don't have a judgment about one way or another. We send metta to difficult beings, not necessarily starting out with the singular person who's been most harmful to us in our lives, but somebody with whom we have some difficulty. And again, it's not condoning all behavior and trying to pretend that everything is nice, but rather it's recognizing our oneness in this wish to be happy, that we all share that, and we all, out of ignorance, create suffering. We then offer metta in a more global and universal sense towards all beings, without exception, without distinction. All beings everywhere also wish to be happy. And so we offer this this feeling of connection and of friendship. What I'd like to do is, is end the retreat by doing and guiding a session of metta. So if you'd like to just stand up and stretch for a few minutes. You have to try to force certain feelings to happen, but just allow it to develop in its own time. We do it by first sitting in a comfortable way, 
Relax your body. Think if there are some phrases that express what you wish most deeply for yourself in an enduring way. Phrases, the traditional phrases are, may I be free from danger or may I have safety? May I have mental happiness? May I have physical happiness? May I have ease of well-being? which means may I not have to struggle terribly with the things of day-to-day life, like livelihood and family. May I be free from danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. Whatever it is that is meaningful to you, just three or four phrases, very gently repeat them over and over again. Somebody comes to mind that you care about a great deal, a good friend, someone who's helped you. You can hold an image of that person or say their name. Extend that sense of loving care, friendship towards them. May you be free from danger. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. 
May you have ease of well-being. It's in metta to everybody here in this room, amongst whom are perhaps people whom you like, those whom you don't know, feel neutral towards, maybe people that you don't like so very much. Can you extend that feeling of wishing them well? And then all beings everywhere, without distinction, without exclusion, those whom you know, those whom you don't know, those near and far, people being born, those dying. May all beings everywhere be free from danger. May they be happy. May they be peaceful.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.